Greetings, church family. Uh, it's so sad for me to not be with you this Sunday morning, but my family, we are all experiencing our fall break at a lake up in Oklahoma. And so I hate not being there with you, uh, but I'm also enjoying the, this nice opportunity to get some rest with my family. But I trust and hope that you all are having a wonderful Sunday in worship. I wanted to take this opportunity to introduce to you a good friend of mine who's gonna be sharing from the scriptures this morning, uh, Sam Parrish, who I'm so excited for you all to have the opportunity to hear from today. He and I have known each other for, for quite some time. He's a tremendous friend to me, uh, somebody that offers a tremendous amount of encouragement, words of wisdom in my own life, and I know that he's going to bless you all with the words that he has to say today. Uh, so Sam, praying for you. Thank you so much for filling in. Church family, we miss you and look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you, Jeremiah. Uh, as Jeremiah said, my name is Sam Parrish. My wife and I have been members here at UBC for a little over five years now, and it is my incredible privilege to be able to sit with you this morning under God's word um, and hear what he has to say. Um, you all, uh, if you were here with us last week, know that Jeremiah has started a series on doubt, what it means to wrestle with doubt in its various forms. Um, and today we turn that focus on from is it rational to believe that God exists more inward to what do I do when doubt takes residence inside of me? What do I do when it goes from rational, thoughtful, process-oriented to that muddy, cloudy, gray world of doubt on the inside? And what I hope is that we, like the psalmist, will be able to leave this morning with a deep, deep trust in God's unfailing love, his steadfast love, his loving kindness. Um, when we're not sure when this, these feelings of doubt are going to resolve, um, what we do with them, and, and, and how to process them along the way. And so we're going to jump directly into the text today um, because there's a lot here, and they've told me that I've only got 40 minutes. So Psalm 13, and uh, give you a second to find it, and, and we're just going to go through the text together. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So I know that jumping into this text that Psalm 13 for many of us has been our 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m. comfort, our cry when the situations in life get too heavy for us to be able to find our own words. And so between the songs that we've sung this morning and the psalm that we've now read together, I know that our feelings are at the very top of our hearts, situations that I'm not aware of, specificities that you may not have even shared with the people that you're on a pew with. And so I want to make sure that as we move through this morning that we steward those feelings well, but that we learn how to let those feelings move us towards Jesus and not define or decide what we do with them as we pursue and interpret his goodness in our lives. When we think about doubt, it's very easy for it to, especially in a psalm like this, to become self-referential. Even the topic of today, self-doubt, um, says that I'm starting with me. And I think that that's a good starting point for us to understand why doubt can be so confusing is because pain begins to turn us inward 
and we don't know what to do when everything inside doesn't make sense. And so we turn inward even further looking for answers either to past experiences or to things that we have learned as we've gone along the way. But when pain gets that loud, everything that we know gets all shuffled up, and I'm looking at all of these details going, what do I do with this? And the thing that's on the top, the pain, tells me that's what's loudest, that's what matters, and this is what's most real. And what the psalmist gives us today is an incredible outline of how to walk through some of the major categories of doubt that exist within our hearts over various times in our lives, what we do with those doubts, and where they find their resolution even when the source of the doubt may never go away. Um, I know many of you are here from Texas or have grown up in Texas. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, um, came to Texas as soon as I could, um, but it seems like once every generation, someone in our family finds themselves somewhere between here and Austin, and I got the straw drawn for me um, in, in my family. And so I grew up the son of two elementary school teachers, and they taught me how to like, recognize words using phonics and letter books. I don't know if y'all ever remember letter books. They were the greatest things ever. I've saved all of mine for Daniel. Um, but I learned how to read and by read, I mean how to comprehend how words, sentences, paragraphs, structure, how all of those things communicate meaning by asking questions of the text. Um, in fifth grade, that was Accelerated Reader. Um, they, they gave me comprehension exams on when you read a text, how do you know what it says? How can you be sure what the meaning is? And you do that by asking questions of the text. Now that I've gotten a little bit older, um, Psalm 13 doesn't have an accelerated reader uh, comprehensive exam that goes with it. Um, and so we have to learn how to ask those questions ourselves. And so the first thing that I had to do when I came to the text, and Jeremiah let me know that this is where he wanted to go, is does this text address self-doubt at all? And if it does, what are we supposed to learn from it? Um, Jeremiah picks these texts a year in advance, lays these all out, um, and then when it's my turn to preach, hands them to me and says, this is what you're going to be working with. And um, you sit there for 10 days and go, I hope this says what, it's, what he hopes it says so that I don't have to have an awkward conversation with the pastor. Um, but I can confidently say today that I believe that this does address self-doubt and even more so gives us, like I said, a, a pattern, a, a system to be able to how to address it. And so our big idea for today that we're going to walk through is the psalmist's unresolved doubt, and hopefully by extension ours, finds both its temporal, meaning in time, and everlasting, ongoing end in the praise of God by means of God's very precious promises. And I hope that you've heard that big idea already this morning in the songs that we've sung and the way that we've been talking through the text. And we can leave confident knowing that this is what we're talking about. So once again, the psalmist's unresolved doubt, and by extension ours, finds both its temporal and everlasting end in praise by means of God's very precious promises. So we start in doubt, and there's a lot of it. And so we're going to break it down into a couple of different categories that I think uh, provide good touch points for us on, on how doubt creeps up in our life at the start. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How disconnected do we have to feel from God for the cry of our heart to be, you've forgotten me? We see in, the, in other places in the text 
where God is, you know, he's left us to our enemies, and we'll get to some of that, um, where it seems to be he is more aggressively hurting me. I am on the receiving end of the difficulties that God has brought into my life. Here the psalmist starts us with, how long will you forget me? When we look into the word itself and its use throughout the Old Testament, this is not, like I said, an active antagonistic response to someone in your life. This is negligence. This is, I exist, and based on your present pattern of behavior towards me, I don't think I matter to you at all. Based on how I see circumstances entering my life, the way that I understand you moving, you are not doing what is, not only not what is best for me, do I even show up on your radar? And he goes further, how long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Not only have you separated yourself from me to where I don't matter, but because of this distance, I am now questioning whether or not we are actually in relationship, whether or not these feelings, whether they come from inside or without, are actually going to define me forever. And am I ever going to prosper? Anything that I put my hand to, am I ever going to succeed? Are the people who are outside of me ever going to allow me to make something of myself? And the psalmist doesn't have an answer at the end of verse 3, or going into verse 3. And so I want to talk through a little bit about how those categories of doubt creep in, um, and then how they do find their rest in Christ. So to start, are we in relationship? How long will you hide your face from me? I hear the psalmist say when he's looking at this type of forgetfulness as, am I in? Like, am I in or out? Based on how you're currently interacting with me, I'm losing confidence that you even call me yours. I'm losing confidence that based on how I see you right now, I could even say that you're my dad. And that's either my fault or yours. Is it because my sin is so great that you don't want to be with me anymore? Or is it because you've gotten too busy and you don't see me? And we know if you've been following Jesus for any amount of time that those things are not objectively true. But we do know we feel them. And we do know that it can be incredibly isolating to think I am the only person in my small group, I am the only person in this congregation, I am the only person in this community of faith that is currently questioning, am I in? Are we good? And I just want to tell you this morning, not only are you not alone, but the person who stands before you wrestles with this on a regular basis. You see, I spent most of my life I say that now, I'm 34, and so I've got to change that phrasing, so it hasn't been most of my life. I spent a good deal of my pre-adult life um, just completely consumed in addiction. So much so that any time I felt pain, that was the thing that I ran to, and because it was so frequent and so habituated and so in me, it was difficult when I felt disconnected from God to think anything other than it's because of the most recent fall in my life that I am not feeling connected to God. Our relationship is based on my present performance, and it doesn't matter how good of a dad he is, he's disappointed in me and the work that I'm doing, and so I've got to try harder to get back in his good graces. And the thing is, is that when you're operating based on that principle, 
you're always exhausted as you pursue Jesus. There is no energy, there's no joy in your pursuit of him. And so your relationship ends up being defined by this perpetual cycle of exhaustion and disappointment. And you think that that's what it means to be a good Christian. And so when you look at passages in the scripture where David says just a couple of chapters later, I have a beautiful inheritance, like at your right hand is the fullness of joy and your fullness is pleasure forevermore. Those concepts can't even enter your mind because the process by which you are pursuing Jesus is this endless cycle of disappointment and exhaustion. And the psalmist sees this here. How long will you hide your face from me? How long will what I am doing and who I am not be enough for us to be in relationship? But it doesn't stop there. I'm going to try and keep the heaviness rolling. Um, Suffering turns us inwards. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day long? I am bound up with a set of feelings that I did not choose and I cannot change that unless you do something in me, I'm not going to be free of. And I still believe in you enough that I'm turning towards you. My, my posture is towards you. I want you to come in and do something about it. But the intensity of my prayer doesn't seem to be getting your attention. And these feelings, this sorrow in my heart all the day long, res- re- remains at the top of what I can see about who you are and who I am. Um, is it always going to hurt this bad? And I know for many of us, that hurt can be internal because of things that we believe about ourselves or things that were spoken over us. It can be external because of circumstances like a multi-year pandemic that we can't change. Um, It can be relational. People in our lives who we genuinely believed were walking side by side with us, we one day look up and they're either not there or they're not who we remember them to be. But then sometimes it's chronic. It's something that was given to us by our DNA. And we're not just walking this life in pain because of external circumstances, but because even our brains themselves are working against us. Um, Jeremiah didn't mention this in the video, but as I've transitioned professionally from nonprofit work, um, moving forward in life, I'm working towards getting my license in mental health here in the state of Texas. And one of the things that I've loved about this church and the staff here is that no one here is shy about saying that sometimes these feelings that you have are a result of real issues that take place in our minds that we need help with, and that there's absolutely nothing wrong with acknowledging that part of the response to that help is seeking it out with good quality therapy. And we're going to talk about more of that in in part two. Um, But sometimes these feelings that seem to be unresponsive to prayer, um, that are unresponsive to God's movement, Um, We need external help in pulling ourselves out of, and and we'll get to that in a second. His third major category of is, how long will my enemies prosper? How long will my enemies be exalted over me? I don't know in 2022 how many of us have active segments of the population who are our enemies, the people that we look at and go, these people are actively seeking to tear down my well-being and my pursuit of Jesus. But I do know that it's very easy to feel like no matter what I put my hands to, I can't seem to get it right. I can't seem to meet the expectations of the people who are around me. I can't seem to succeed in a way that gives me the sense of purpose that I expect. 
And I think that this is applicable here because David's enemies were the greatest source of his lack of stability. And we'll get to, once I keep saying that, but we'll get to that in, in part two. Um, but David has in his mind a calling that God has put on his life, and he sees segments of the population, these situations that, once again, he did not choose and cannot change, that are working against what he genuinely believes is God's intent for his life. And he looks to God and says, if you don't do something, no matter how hard I work, everything seems to go wrong, and you've got to do something about it. And so we end verse 2 in a in a really heavy place of, I have all of this churning inside. I have directed it towards my work, towards my heart, towards our relationship together with you, God, and nowhere I look can I find peace. There is no respite for the doubt in my soul and the places that traditionally give that to me. So what do I do? In the next two verses, it can seem, because of his very declarative tense, that David has entered into kind of an argumentative posture with God. Verse 3, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy says, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. I need more than I can see right now, and if you don't come through... My life has no meaning, and you will get no glory. Are we good saying that to God from our position of doubt? Or do we tend to just look at our pain and just keep wrestling with it and keep fighting with it and wondering when it's going to end? Or do we turn and say, because of your promises, because of who you have said you are, and because of who you have said I am, You've got to do something about this. And Austin mentioned earlier the enemies of David. I mentioned it briefly. But you see it everywhere in the Psalms. Everywhere when David is talking, he says, if you don't rescue me, my enemies will prevail. If you don't do something about this, my enemies are going to get glory. We know he's a warrior king, but why is it that every time David references God's character... He specifically is referencing his enemies and the situation that he's in. And it's because David knows something that we need to claim as we're wrestling with doubt, and that is that God makes very specific promises that are meant to carry us through seasons of doubt. I don't know how many of you know this in the Old Testament and the way that the pattern moves through, but in 2 Samuel 7, God gives a very specific promise to David that stands behind all of these comments, starting in verse 8. Now tell then my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty said, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and have appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all of your enemies before you. Now I will make your name great, like the greatest names of the men on the earth. I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they can have a home of their own, no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people. I will give you rest from all your enemies. When David took the throne, 
God specifically said, you are ushering in a season by which I am giving you rest from your enemies. God looks over his future and his responsibility in leading the people Israel and says, I am speaking rest for you from your enemies. And then we see this psalm of David in the midst of doubt going, but what about my enemies? You said, but now. And how many times when we look at the promises that God has given us, do we sit there and the core of our doubt is not that we're thinking any less of ourselves, but just because we don't know what to do with the tension between what we're feeling, what we're experiencing, and what God claims to have spoken over our life. That tension seems unyielding. It is oppressive in how we move through it. And we just wonder, how long? How long do I have to sit under this? Just before the pandemic, um, the young adult Sunday school class had an incredible privilege of getting to sit for a couple of months in person and then for many months over Zoom um, under the teaching of Melanie Monroe, who walked us through a series on what it means to churn like this. How long, oh Lord? And we didn't know it when she was teaching that the pandemic was going to hit at the time that it did and how long it was going to take to move through it and how painful that was going to be. But it set the tone for us and for me, big categories, of what it looks like to just sit in this tension. And one of the most important things that I pulled away from it as we were looking through this is that sometimes that how long, sometimes that... um, that unresolved tension of God's promises in our current situation um, is resolved in time because the scenario does come to an end. The Lord graciously brings an end in time to the source of the pain that we're going through. But sometimes the end of that pain is the end of our natural life, that it ends in the glory that is to be with Him forever. And then what does it take to live your life between now and then in a posture that is anticipatory rather than accusatory? What does it look like to maintain a posture of faith when the heaviness doesn't leave and God's promises are ultimately fulfilled and how he chooses to resolve them on the other side of this life? And if it hadn't been for those words spoken at the time that they were, I don't know if I would have had the categories to be able to go through what the last two years have been both for our family and the church. It's incredible to be able to see that as deeply as I was wrestling with doubt of whether, I guess, does God love me? And and those feelings have not necessarily changed as I've gone through, but to see his faithfulness in so many other places have buoyed me while these other unresolved tensions continue to exist. And I'm hoping that we can learn how to do that together as we head towards the end of the passage. That posture of anticipation rather than accusation, sets the tone for what it takes to really find resolution in in time for this doubt that we have. I, I don't know when God is going to move, to move the weight off of your life that exists presently, but I do know that he is good, and I do know what turns us from questions 
towards his goodness. And the psalmist here says that it's praise. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Notice the psalmist does not find, receive, or discover any answer to his doubt from verses 1 and 2 by the time we get to his posture and decision in verse 5. There is no answer to when is my doubt going to come to an end when he says, but I am going to trust, I am going to sing, and God has done bountifully and beautifully with me. So what do I do? What do we do to make that happen? And to someone who is hurting, it's very hard not to hear what I'm about to say as, well, just try harder. And, and I will work to temper that this morning as, as we share. But please know that there are things that we can engage in that help remind us of who God is, even when our doubt is so all-consuming um, in our hearts. The, the first thing that the text I see encourages us to do it's in the second line. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I am going to bring the fullness of my being into the light of who you are, knowing that I am doing that in a time when I am feeling vulnerable, I am feeling hurt. I am still going to trust you enough, though, to pull my heart out in front of you and say, there isn't anything apart from what I have in you. I'm going to take what little faith I have in this moment and I'm going to give it back to you and I'm going to choose to rejoice. But in the throes of my addiction, in the throes of what it took for me to find peace in Jesus, I would have never been able to do that without a couple of gentlemen who were basically Jesus on earth for me at a time when church was a scary place. So, a little more context. Um, I know we have a mixed audience in here this morning in terms of age group, and so I'll be careful with my language here. But I, in my addictions, they were both of a type and intensity that when you come to a typical Southern Baptist church and tell people, this is what I'm struggling with, they're like, that's nice. Your life is on the front line of a culture war that I have no interest in getting involved in, um, Figure that out with the Holy Spirit. He's faithful. And while I have never found that to be the case at UBC, and it's why my family continues to be here, those past church experiences where I had experienced that led me to believe I really did have to figure this out on my own. And the Lord sent key men in my life, 23, 24 years old, who sat me down and said, your life is not too scary for me. The things that you are struggling with are confusing, and we don't know how you reconcile your feelings with the text. We don't know what God's going to do long term, but we're going to be with you as long as it takes. And so my heart that was stuck inside, underneath all of this doubt, found a safe home in the hands of three or four men who said, we love Jesus and we love you, you don't scare me. Let's figure this out. And what turned, or what started as isolation, feelings of confusion, 
not being sure how my identity related to my feelings, all of those things played out, I started realizing that there were other true things in my life other than my addiction. I was called loved. I was called forgiven. I was good at playing the oboe. I enjoyed nice coffee. I enjoyed going on very brief outdoor excursions so that I did not sweat. <laughs> and in the midst of it, those confusing, unresolved feelings became one voice and a chorus of voices rather than the one all-consuming voice I heard in my heart. Now, to get there, it took making a very vulnerable and dangerous step. I had to step out first and say, my insides are dark and confusing, and do so before I really had any guarantee that the people that my heart was being shown to were going to be who I needed. Because of that, don't hear me say you have to be willy-nilly with who you share your heart with. It's okay to pay $75 an hour and do that first with a therapist. If you're not sure that the community that you're around is safe, or if you know for sure that the things that you're wrestling with, people don't have the tools to handle, we grow our community up to our needs, and sometimes that means us taking a couple of steps with a mental health professional and giving our community the tools that they need to be able to walk with us. And so even if you have to engage a therapist at the start and say, here is my heart, by the law of Texas, you can't engage with me in an unethical way, do it. Because that moment of being able to break out of my inside and bring my heart into the light and hear from someone that your mess is not out of control, it is not the only, you are not the only person who's gone through this, you are not the only one asking these questions, and there are serious, quality, enduring answers for the struggles that you are dealing with Oh, and by the way, here's Jesus. My heart was able to then start seeing all the places that God actually had been with me through the throes of addiction, through the process of going to broken churches, being around people who claim the name of Jesus and then wouldn't let black kids play in our gym at church. What is it like when you feel like the people of God aren't safe? I'm not going to steal too much of Jeremiah's sermon next week. Um, but you then have to live in community with them. And I found a small group of people who could do that. And then they encouraged me to go back into the text and see where has God actually been good. You feel like all that's ever come into your life is this really difficult, hard set of circumstances, feelings that you did not choose, feelings that you cannot change, things that may never resolve themselves. And so I did. Except I didn't want to start with the text because the text felt cold to me at the time. We have a different relationship, me and the Bible now. But at the time, I wasn't sure that I trusted the person who wrote it, and so why would I read it? And so instead, I went to my life experience and took out a sheet of paper and started writing down all the things that I could undeniably say were God's movement in my life, good and bad. The bad list started off at like nine and a half pages. And I had like three or four sentences of God's goodness. And I brought that to my friends, and they're like, yeah, but. And remember when, and remember when you said, 
and that night that this happened, and it taught me a very key thing about the way I think about God, and that's that I cannot do it in isolation. When I am interpreting the things that God is doing in my life, I am utterly dependent on the people of God in his church around me to help me see it. Which means, if you are in relationship with someone right now, and you see God at work, we are... I love that UBC is not characteristically this way, but we as a culture find it very difficult to unprovoked step into someone's life and say something about a feeling or say something vulnerable. It feels like we're crossing a major social taboo to step in and say, I see God doing this amazing thing in your life. And I can tell you that if you will just get over that and do that, you will bring life to people in a way that I cannot put into words. God has given you sight to be able to see what he is doing in the lives of people around you because he says in the New Testament the way this whole thing works is that we are rooted and built up to encourage one another. That's how Paul talks about the church. Like the mortar that holds all of our bricks together as a church is the encouragement of the work of the Spirit now. Not just the thing that he's done in the past, not just the eternity that is to come, but the work that he is doing right now. And so when you see God growing in someone's life or doing something in someone's life in your small group, in UBC Enriched, as you're walking down the hallway, call it out. Because what keeps me rooted in this is one of the generational things that was handed down to me from my forebears is that truth is more important than kindness. It does not matter how nice you say something. It does not matter how people feel when you're done. If you have spoken the truth to them, you did the right thing. Um, unfortunately, that doesn't square with the fruits of the Spirit that we see in the New Testament. But it is a tool that I was given, and so I justified a whole lot of very harsh behavior in my late 20s um, by saying, but I'm saying true things, and this is good, right? But then feeling nothing but harshness coming from God? And so somehow the manner that by which I was judging others and engaging with others was also the way that I was hearing from the Lord. That's also very biblical. And so when I wonder, is God doing anything in me, one of the greatest encouragements that my wife can give me is, yeah, but you're a kinder man than the one I married. You were never harsh with me. You were never unduly unkind but I see you going out of your way to make sure that you don't say something if it could be said in a kinder way, where you let the love of others impact the way that you treat them, where you don't put undue burdens on people because you see that where they are in life, your expectations for them are unreasonable. And I know that's not you because that's not how, that's not how sin manifests in your life. You, you tend towards coldness and harshness. And because you know that, you are being open to the Spirit's movement in your life to grow you out of it. And because I'm up here in front of you all, thank you. Because I don't believe that I would have become that person if it weren't for living in this community. And so, when God is doing something in your life or in the lives of the people around you, call it out. And then, Share what he's actually doing when it comes up. And this is my last point of application. Um, I feel like I'm losing 
I don't know what game I'm losing, but I feel like I'm losing when I acknowledge in the midst of difficulty that something good is happening. Like Jacqueline will ask me, uh, did you have a good day? And if 99 good things happened, but one bad thing happened, I will tell her the bad because it feels like I'm not properly acknowledging the suffering that I've gone through that day if I engage the good. But she reminds me of the point that I made earlier in the sermon, which is that is one voice in the chorus of voices throughout your day. What are all the true things that have happened today, and how do we see this real moment of suffering in light of the fact that you had a conversation with someone that you thought that you were never going to get to speak to again because of life and estrangement, that you haven't even thought about your addictive behaviors in however long, that when you got up and you were ready to have breakfast, there was blueberry loaf made fresh for you in the fridge. All of those good and true things, when we give them a voice, sometimes makes it feel like we're taking light of the suffering that we're going through, when really all we're doing is asking our suffering to please take its proper place in the effects of everything else that is going on in our lives. And sometimes that's where pain really is. It really is the most important thing. We need to find resolution for it. It must end or we're going to have difficulty. But if we can work to let the chorus of all true things speak, um, we will find that when we look at a, verse, a, sec, a, sec, a section of verses like 5 and 6, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me, we can say that without feeling like we're cheating ourselves of acknowledging our pain because it is true. I stand here today both in this moment because of the anxiety leading up to it and facing down the holiday season, um, feeling as addicted as I did in the throes of my addiction decades ago. Those feelings are still in me. I have never been able to find the right method or practice or anything that necessarily changes the core feelings that I have that threaten to identify me at a fundamental level. But what I have learned is that those feelings stand as one piece of the person that I am, and I can say with the psalmist in Psalm 16, um, the boundary lines have fallen for me in beautiful places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance because I can't think about my son Daniel without getting a little choked up. And he is the embodiment of a promise that, I, that wasn't actually made to me. Like I had no guarantee that I would be able to be his dad in the way that I am that I would be able to have my heart broken open in such a powerful and amazing way. And God chose in that particular way for me to give me and Jacqueline peace and joy and a constant expression of his faithfulness and a reminder that if I can feel this way towards him, how much greater is God's love for me as I'm processing that on a day-to-day -day basis. But it goes from this very small moment of just this morning, waking up, walking out my door, Daniel hearing my feet and going, Daddy, sing, sing, because we sing, come thou fountain in the mornings, um, and, and wanting to engage me that way that then lifts my heart towards the two ends that I gave us at the beginning, that our unresolved doubt by means of God's very precious promises will result in temporal 
and everlasting praise. And so let me, in the last couple of minutes, break down those pieces. Temporal. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. We have evidence of God's goodness in our lives now. And so we can sing in response to who God is because of what he has done now. But that now is connected to an everlasting, enduring, promised source and end for our unresolved doubt because of the cross. And he says that just before. Even though the cross had not quite happened, we have the thesis here. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. David didn't know what that salvation was going to look like. Some of you may have come in here this morning not knowing what that salvation looks like, what that rescue could look like. But Paul takes this idea in the New Testament and breaks it open for us a little bit in Colossians 2 and says, this is why you can rejoice now. And you, who were dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross, disarming the rulers, authorities, and putting them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Anything that stands to try and identify you apart from one who was far off being brought near has been put to open shame by the blood of Christ. There is not a choice you have made. There is not a pattern of behavior that you have lived in. There is not a doubt that you presently and unresolvedly are sitting in that God from eternity has not spoken over your life and said, come to me. Let my blood wash over you so that when you look at the core of who you are and question whether it is good enough, whether your behaviors are going to be the things that, you define, that define you, whether your feelings are going to decide for you, what you see at the top of your life when you look down in it is the covering of the blood of my son. D.A. Carson said this in a way that has just radically transformed my life when preaching on the Old Testament in Exodus, that the people who sacrificed the lamb when the angel of death was passing over Egypt, they were not saved by the intensity of their belief in what God was going to do. They were saved by the blood of the lamb. So in any given moment, God's ability to define me, his right to decide for me, my ability to live in joyous relationship with him is not defined by how I feel today, but by that brushing of the blood of the lamb over the doorpost of my life, where Jesus, from eternity past into eternity future, looks over me and says, mine. And if you don't have that today, let us talk to you about it. If you want a peace that says, in spite of my circumstances, I want to be able to live with joy. I want to be able to live and sing in salvation for what God has done for me. If you want to belong to the king of the universe who loves you so intimately that he ordained the pattern of your life to bring you in today to hear that he loves you. When our deacons come forward, 
Come and pray with them. We're here to help show you this amazing, kind, loving God who says, you may not find resolution to the tension of your pain and doubt today, but you can rejoice in me knowing that I am good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you tell us that you are good, and sometimes our feelings scream the opposite. And so I pray that as we go forward from today, that your word would come alive to us in a way that we don't deserve, that you would move your spirit in us individually and in UBC collectively for us to be able to see your goodness, for us to be able to call it out in one another, and for us to just simply be able to look to you, Jesus, and say, in spite of my circumstances, I trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.